If you could ask God one question and know that you'd get an answer, what would that question be? Now, that was the opening question of a course that I used to help run at our church in London. The course introduced non-Christians to the basic claims of Christianity. As you imagine, people asked a wide range of things. Do dogs go to heaven? Why did you make cockroaches? Or perhaps you could list there any number of other things. Now, there were some more serious questions that became quite common. Hasn't science disproved God? Why should we trust the Bible? Uh, Aren't all religions basically the same? Uh, But one of the questions that came up again and again was this. If you are all loving and all powerful, why so much suffering in the world? Uh, This is the age-old problem of evil. And we have to say it is a problem, not just a philosophical problem, but one which is quite personal. Uh, The question behind this question often related to something that person or a loved one was experiencing. Uh, And it's a very good question. Why does God allow evil to happen in his world. Uh, Do you ever wish that you could actually ask God that question uh, and know you would get an answer? It's that second half of the question that seems sometimes to be impossible. Uh, But if you'd like to ask God that question and know the answer, well, you're in the right place here today because hundreds and hundreds of years ago, one man did ask God that question. His name was Habakkuk. In fact, he asked God two questions about suffering. Uh, And in his grace, God provided him with some answers. And thankfully, Habakkuk, at God's command, wrote those answers down so that you and I can read them today. Last week, we looked at question one, and this week, we look at question two. And I hope you'll see that this question really gets to the heart of the matter. Because in these verses, Habakkuk certainly doesn't sugarcoat it. He challenges God about an apparent contradiction. Here it is. How can a holy God allow such horrendous things to happen in his world? Uh, More to the point, how can God even use such things to advance his purposes? Uh, Now we'll consider that question more deeply in a few moments. Uh, And as we do, we'll also look at God's answer, or at least the first part of it. In fact, these are our two main points today. Firstly, the question, how can a holy God use horrendous things? How can a holy God use horrendous things? Uh, And then secondly, here is uh, the first part of God's answer. Uh, This is the answer. God gives us his word, and God calls us to wait on him. Uh, How can a holy God use horrendous things? And and this is the answer. God gives us his word, and God calls us to wait on him. And so let's look at the question first. How can a holy God use horrendous things? Uh, In other words, this really is the second question. Uh, And and in Habakkuk, uh, what he's doing is highlighting really an obvious tension. Uh, This idea of who God is and what's happening just doesn't square with him. If God is truly pure and righteous, how can he get his hands dirty using means that are so so wicked, so filthy? Uh, Now, to put this in context, last week we saw Habakkuk confront God about corruption in the church. Uh, He points out to God the fact that God's people were filled with so much violence and injustice. And the problem was God seemed to be ignoring what was going on. And so Habakkuk brings his complaint to God. Uh, He tells God, look, why are you doing nothing? Why are you sitting idly by while all of this goes on in the midst of your people? And God provided a shocking and surprising answer. Uh, The good news is God does care about what is going on amidst his people. And then we had the bad news. The bad news really is what God plans to do about it. 
He's planning to use this bitter, hasty nation, the Babylonians. They were going to sweep through the land, conquering not just Judah, but, but crushing countless other nations with them. His response to violence in Judah was to judge them. Uh, And the way he was going to do that was, well, with even more violence. And that presents an obvious problem, doesn't it? I mean, imagine for a moment that your home is on fire. Uh, You call the fire department and soon you hear sirens and the fire trucks show up. Uh, The only problem is instead of unrolling the hoses and drenching the fires, uh, the firemen pull out flamethrowers and start to get at work. That's what God seems to be saying that he's going to do. He's going to fight fire with more fire. His remedy for sin is, well, even more sinfulness. And this is a problem. I mean, first of all, we have to ask, where does it end? But there's another problem. Uh, There is a problem for another reason, we could say. Because all of this doesn't seem to square with God's character. Certainly his character as he reveals it. And this is the heart of Habakkuk's concern. Remember, Habakkuk is a man who knew God. We're told earlier on that he is a prophet. You see, the problem is not that he's ignorant of God. No, the problem is God's solution does not seem to square with what, God, what Habakkuk knows about him. How can a holy God use such horrendous things? Isn't it incongruous? Isn't it totally inconsistent with God to fight sin with sin? Uh, two wrongs don't make a, make a right. That's what we say. That's what we teach our children. And if that is true, what on earth is God doing? I mean, consider for a moment what Habakkuk knows about God. Uh, we see this there in verse 12. Uh, look at the way he addresses God in verse 12. Uh, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Uh, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, uh, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. And now there's a lot packed into those uh, few verses there, uh, and without giving an entire theology lesson, I think we can draw out at least four things. Uh, firstly, we see here that God is perfect. He is perfect. God is described here as the Holy One. A holy means set apart. It means different from everything else. And God is different in this sense, that he alone is marked by, by perfect moral purity. He is a perfect God, but he's also a personal God. Uh, Did you notice Habakkuk calls him my God, my Holy One? Uh, He even uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord, uh, uh, something that reminds us that God has entered into a deep personal relationship with his people. Uh, He's a perfect God, he's a personal God, and he's a powerful God as well. Uh, Look, he's described as the rock, uh, suggesting that he is the only solid foundation. He is the one who sits over everything else, who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. As the all-powerful God, he's able to ordain and to establish powerful nations like Babylon. And it's this perfect, personal, powerful God that's also a purposeful God. He's ordained them and established them for a reason. He goes on to reprove and correct his people. That's what he's doing here. He's sent this nation to straighten his people out. In fact, this purposeful character of God is revealed even in that first phrase that Habakkuk uses. Uh, He is from everlasting, literally uh, translated, he is from of old. Uh, This reminds us not only that God is eternal, but uh, that he has an established plan that he chose long ago to gather to himself a people. Uh, He promised this years before to Abraham and even earlier to Adam. 
And I believe that's the reason for Habakkuk's confidence. We shall not die, he says, in the middle of of this uh, description. He knows this perfect, personal, powerful God will never abandon that age-old purpose. And from this, it's clear that Habakkuk knows God. In fact, we could almost say he seems to be quoting almost from, from our own shorter catechism. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there is that question, what is God? And here is the answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, eternal, unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is what Habakkuk believes about God. We see it just in these few verses. And yet, rather than solving the problem, this is in fact what creates the problem. He can't swear this, what he knows about God, with this, what he knows about the Babylonians. The Babylonians were terrible, a terrible nation. They were as horrendous as God was holy. God has already described them just up the page in verses 5 through 11. They're described as a people filled with violence. And now in 14 through 16, Habakkuk uses this dramatic image. He compares the nations to the fish of the sea, and the Babylonians are like greedy and ungodly fishermen. I look down at verse 15, describing Babylon, Habakkuk writes this. Perhaps the king of Babylon is the one he has in mind. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out of his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Notice the greed that's depicted. The nations, peoples, families, communities are just a commodity to Babylon. Babylon had no regard for human life. Instead, they were, they were set on rampant consumption. All they cared about was their own comfort, their luxury, getting rich. The true human cost was irrelevant to them, so long as they could advance their own power and their own position. And not only were they greedy for gain, they were ungodly too. They were arrogant. As verse 16 says, therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Instead of honoring God as the source of everything. This is a nation that trusts in its own strength. As we read just up the page in verse 11, they were guilty men whose own might is their God. They claimed credit for their own success. I think of that time in in the book of Daniel where you see Nebuchadnezzar looking out and surveying his kingdom and just praising himself for everything that he's accomplished. And so this is the big concern for Habakkuk. Uh, How on earth could God, a holy God, use them? Sure, God wants to bring justice, but really, he, God, has ordained them as a judgment? And listen, this is how many of us feel as we look at the world, isn't it? Or maybe as you consider life. I'll be honest, this is how I felt earlier this week when we received news about Amy. How can a holy God use horrendous people like the Babylonians? And how can a perfect, personal, purposeful, powerful God use horrendous things like disease? Uh, He can and does allow terrible things, and and certainly we have to ask, how can he use such things to advance his good plans and his his good purposes? Uh, These things drive us to consider the very questions that are on Habakkuk's heart, don't they? In the face of evil, we find ourselves asking, actually Habakkuk asks two questions, but really they boil down to one fundamental concern. Uh, The first question is in verse 13. Really, it amounts to this. Why is God silent? Why is he silent? Look down at verse 13 with me. 
Uh, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And the second question is similar. It's there in verse 17. Uh, Why is God silent? And then I suppose we could say, why is God still? Uh, Why doesn't he speak and why doesn't he do something to stop the evil in the world? Look at verse 17. Is he the king of Babylon then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is this ever going to end? In In other words, if God really is the supreme court of the universe, why isn't God issuing a final ruling? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he put a stop to what is going on? I mean, he knows the holiness of God. This is the point. And he knows the horrendousness of evil. And so, and so that makes sense, doesn't it? He's asking God this question. How can this be? And I indeed am, am very thankful that Habakkuk doesn't just let this lie. I'm glad that he isn't just trite about it, that he isn't sort of chipper, that he doesn't just say, oh, okay, God's going to use the Babylonians. That's great. Let's, let's just pray. Let's just thank God for that. No, I actually love this. Habakkuk confronts God. He even brings him a complaint. In fact, one of the words used here is, is to suggest even that Habakkuk is rebuking God because he hears what God says and he comes to God and he says, look, God, that does not make any sense. And so I'm going to stand here, he says, watching and waiting until you provide me with an answer. Uh, And listen, as strange as it might seem, that it might even make us feel uncomfortable, but in some sense, I think Habakkuk is presenting us with a model. Habakkuk is demonstrating how it is that we grow in faith. That is, we grow in faith as we engage with God in real ways. That means listening carefully to his word, listening to what he says. And then what do we do? Do we just sort of nod our heads and walk away? And no, we come back to God in prayer. We come back to God with our problems. We come back to God with our confusion. In fact, you could put it this way. In the school of faith, who gets the best grades? Is it the student who just sort of listens and pretends they understand and walk away? No. It's the student who waits around after class and says, look, God, I'll be honest. I don't really get it. Habakkuk refuses to do what so many of us do when we face a challenge like this. That is, Habakkuk refuses to trust his own reason. He knows he can't just think his way out of this. And yet, let's be honest, this is often what we try to do. Uh, We especially try to do this when it comes to the problem of evil. Uh, How can a good God allow evil? That's what we ask. And then to solve this problem, we we tend to go one of two different ways. Some people tend to downplay God. They underestimate his goodness or his power. Uh, Oh, they say, look, God is not involved. He's got nothing to do with these bad things that happen. There is nothing he can do about them, and he's, he's just as surprised about them as we are. Now Habakkuk knows that isn't right, doesn't he? He can't let God off the hook so easily. In verse 14, you see it is God who makes the nations like fish in the sea. And now everything Habakkuk has said about God's perfection, his personality, his power, his purpose, none of, us allows, uh, none of that allows us to minimize God in this way. And so instead of minimizing God, what do we do? Well, we, we tend instead to minimize evil. Uh, we say it isn't that bad. It, it can't be that bad. I mean, I mean, why don't we try to look on the bright side of things? Uh, sure, the Babylonians were brutal, but... But look at the amazing culture they produced. Look at the art, the artifacts, the developments in human language. 
You can go and visit the British Museum and, and see it all. I, I mean, and after all, maybe the King of Babylon just had some daddy issues or something. And now try telling that to the towns and villages that the Babylonians burned or to the people who their soldiers raped and pillaged. Minimizing evil certainly doesn't help, does it? And here's the thing. In fact, the very reason Habakkuk feels the tension is because he refuses to do just this. Uh, you see, there is no easy answer to the problem of evil. And in truth, as Christians, we feel that problem even more acutely. Uh, for we know God, we know who he is, that he's a holy God. And hopefully we see evil for what it is. It can't be explained away so easily. It is truly a horrendous thing. And so, uh, like Habakkuk, hopefully we come to God asking this question. Why are you silent? Why are you still? How can you, a holy God, use horrendous things like these? Now, hopefully we station ourselves at the watchpost with Habakkuk and listen. And yet, thankfully, for a second time, God replies, doesn't he? And that reply begins in chapter 2, verse 2, and actually runs through the end of the chapter. And to summarize, what, what God wants us to see is this. Uh, he doesn't sidestep the question. When it comes to the problem of evil, we discover God doesn't just bury his head. No, he faces this head on. Uh, sure, he doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he does tell us what we need to know instead. And ultimately, what we need to know is this, that in the end, God will judge all evil. God will judge all evil. God will bring perfect justice. One day, all violence will come to an end. Uh, and next week, we'll look at that in much more detail. Uh, but for now, I want us to dwell on the first few verses of chapter 2. Uh, before we uh, see the details that God provides, uh, God also gives us some groundwork. He lays some foundations. Foundations not only for tackling the question in a philosophical sense, but, but actually some foundations for practically dealing with the reality of evil. You see, what we learn here is this, that God isn't silent at all. Uh, and at the same time, we learn that God is not still. No, in answer to the question, how can a holy God use horrendous things, he gives us this answer. But we're told here that God gives us his word and he calls us to wait on him. He gives us his word and he calls us to wait on him. And this is what we discover in verses 2 through 5. He gives us his word as in he isn't silent at all. No, God is a God who speaks. And on top of that, he calls us to wait, by which he means he tells us that he will do something about the evil in the world. It won't go on forever. One day the evil will stop. And the problem is, of course, that we have to be patient because we have to trust God's perfect timing. God gives us his word and he calls us to wait. Firstly, notice what we learn about the word of God down in verse 2. In Habakkuk 2, verse 2, we read this, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. And what God is saying is this. Okay, Habakkuk, I understand your question. Here is my answer. Uh, but before I give it, uh, pick up a pen. Uh, write this down. Uh, make sure it's clear. Make sure that everyone can read it. In fact, don't just write it on paper. Engrave it on stone because what I'm about to tell you is absolutely certain. It, it will not lie. It will not delay. And it's compelling too. We have this phrase, so that he may run who reads it. Now, it isn't exactly clear what that phrase means. It could refer to the way that we respond to God's word. Or it could suggest this word is going to be carried far and wide by a herald. 
Either way, the point is God is addressing Habakkuk's question, why are you silent? And God is saying, no, I'm not silent. Uh, I am a God who speaks. Uh, And what he says to Habakkuk, did you notice, isn't for Habakkuk alone. No, God wants this word to be recorded for future generations, even for us. In fact, he's telling him to write it down so that we gathered here can read it today. Uh, What an amazing thing this, this is, that God should care enough to do this. Not only address our questions and concerns, but even to write the answers down here in his word so that we can return to those answers again and again. How this should fill us with assurance and and reassure us. I mean, what we have, of course, is, is much more than just this, isn't it? We have the whole word of God, everything all the way from Genesis through Revelation. You see, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers at various times and in many ways through the prophets, men like Habakkuk. But now we have something even better than that, don't we? Because in these last days, he's spoken to us in a bigger and better way. He's spoken to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but he, the only begotten, at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is God's final word, his clear, his certain, his compelling word. And Jesus uh, didn't walk uh, separate from violence. He didn't uh, somehow remove himself from it. No, he actually came to earth and experienced violence himself. Uh, He, the holy God, came and didn't just use horrendous things, but horrendous things were used on him. He took on himself our evil. He died in our place. We're going to talk much more about that next week when we think about the justice God brings. But for now, we have to ask if God has given us his word, how on earth does that actually help us? How does that help us address the problem of evil? Well, I think sometimes the problem is we, we, we miss really the whole picture. We, we get it wrong because we think about this whole problem in the wrong way. When we raise this issue, we often look at it this way, as if God has left us to ourselves in a big, bad world. We, we look at this as if God has left us to fend for ourselves, as if we had to make for ourselves sense of the world that's around us, everything that's going on in the world today. We address this question as if God has done nothing to help. But that, of course, is dead wrong, because God is intimately involved in his world. And not only that, we serve a God who has spoken, who tells us what is going on. He doesn't tell us everything we want to know, that's for sure, but he tells us what we need to know. As a loving father, he comforts and reassures us. It's like we're a child riding a huge, scary roller coaster for the very first time. And now a dad might sit down next to a child. He is with him. And what does he say? He says, it will be okay. Don't worry. I'm right here next to you. And maybe he even holds the child's hand, even speaks to him over and over again, uh, over the din of all the screaming. What he doesn't do is pull out a schematic of the ride. He doesn't indicate where the tension points are and and the tensile strength of the various materials. He doesn't mark all of the forces on a map and and take the kid through a crash course in engineering. Look, he says, "I've, I've proved it. The ride is safe. What are you worried about? No, that's not how it works. Instead, he wants to know the, ch- the child to know that he's there, that he, is, that he is with him, and so the child can hear him. And this is what I mean when I say God has given us his word. Uh, and his word, in a similar way, doesn't give us a crash course in, uh, in engineering, we could say. He doesn't tell us how it all works. Instead, he speaks a word to reassure us. In the midst of pain, he invites us to trust him. 
And listen, this is the only way to persevere through evil, is it not? Uh, some of us are on a roller coaster right now, I know, and, and this surely is our only hope of persevering. Uh, we might not have a philosophical answer, but, but we certainly need to know God's word. Uh, we need to know that we don't face evil alone. We need to know that we don't interpret evil alone. We have a God who is with us, a God who speaks his word to comfort us and reassure us. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this surely is how we face the reality of evil. Day by day, moment by moment, leaning on his word. In fact, that is exactly what verse 4 means, isn't it? It's such a key verse. It's a verse that Paul quotes later in, in his letters to the Galatians. In fact, it's a description of the way of salvation. It's what the Christian life is all about. I mean, look at verse 4. Firstly, we see the evil. We see the king of Babylon. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's the problem. Horrendous evil in a holy God's hands. But how do we respond to what we see? Well, we listen to God's word. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Yes, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And now that fits so well with what we saw a few weeks ago, didn't it? Doesn't it in the Gospel of John? Uh, maybe you'll know that if you were here. In John chapter 4, we considered the nature of true faith, real faith, firm faith. What is that? Well, it simply consists of taking God at his word. It means judging what we see by what we hear from God. Uh, judging what we see in the world by what we hear from God. And surely that is what God is calling for from Habakkuk. As one commentator writes, Yahweh makes an outrageous promise that simply confronts what Habakkuk says. You must not let the evidence of your own eyes contradict the real truth. Uh, faith means allowing God's word to be a light uh, unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Uh, this word, his precious word, it isn't just an optional extra. No, it is something that we need to navigate life as Christians. It is something Habakkuk needs as he sees the Babylonian armies approach in the distance. And it's something we need whenever we are confronted with evil. But whenever the armies of sickness or suffering or disease or distress come storming over the horizon of our lives, uh, we need the word of God. And in his grace, God is a God who speaks to us. And so the first part of the answer is this. God isn't silent. He's given us his word. And of course, the second part of the answer is, is actually very similar. He's given us his word, but he also calls us to wait on him. And now, waiting is, of course, one of the most difficult things we have to do. I mean, it's hard enough to wait for something that we're looking forward to, isn't it? Something like, like the presents we receive at Christmas. And yet, how much harder it is to wait for something terrible to end. Uh, evil, heartache, suffering, violence, tragedy. That just takes things to a whole new level, doesn't it? Uh, but this is what God calls Habakkuk to do. It's what he calls us to do. Look down uh, at verse 3 with me. Uh, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And now there's a tension here, isn't there? It will not lie. It hastens to the end. It will surely come. It will not delay. And yet at the same time, we have to wait for it. It's like Jesus telling us that he is going to return soon. As soon is certainly a very interesting word to use, isn't it? I mean, we're still here 2,000 years later waiting. 
And yet this is what it means to live by faith, isn't it? It means to take God at his word. Yes, but Habakkuk introduces us to another dimension. Uh, Taking God at his word often means waiting on God. Uh, Not only do we listen to what God says, but we trust him. Uh, We trust that he will do what he says, but he'll do it in his way, and he will do it in his own perfect timing. And one of the reasons we struggle to wait is because we love to be in control. Uh, Whenever we face with a challenge, a problem, we like to dive in. We, We like to try and solve it. Either that or we just try to ignore it and and hope it goes away. Uh, But of course, the problem of evil won't do that. And that is why it's a problem, because it confronts us every single day. And that is why the question kept coming up again and again on that evangelistic course I mentioned uh, at the start. It, It is why for thoughtful Christians, it's really a question that rises in our hearts almost every single day. How can a holy God allow, even use, such horrendous things in the world? That is a question we'll ask if we know God and also if we know the reality of evil. Downplaying those things will never help at all. Nor does thinking that we can somehow solve that problem. And the good news is we don't have to solve that problem, do we? God has already told us of his plans to solve it once and for all. In fact, he's already begun to solve that problem through Jesus Christ. And then one day soon, he's coming again to deal with evil fully and finally. And so in the meantime, what do we do? Well, we do what God calls us to do. We recognize God has given his his word to comfort and reassure us. And in that word, he calls us to wait. He calls us to take him at his word. And he calls as to live in humble surrender to him and his timing. And we need his help to do that. And so let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that your word addresses the serious concerns and problems of our heart, that it doesn't sugarcoat these things. Lord, thank you that you don't just provide some philosophical answer in your word, but rather you give us what we need to endure and to do so patiently. And so we pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill our hearts and our minds with the promises of your word. Uh, And by your spirit, work in us patience and trust. Uh, Lord, may it be true of us, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, Help us to hear you. Help us to heed your word. Help us to trust you, even amid pain. And we ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.